Joel Morse has devoted his career to building innovative companies that serve the pharmaceutical industry. His latest venture, Curavit Clinical Research, runs decentralized or virtual trials, which have gotten huge in the pandemic. I'm a big fan, and I'll be a panelist on an upcoming Curavit webinar about unlocking the potential of virtual trials. Check the Health Business blog for registration details. In this episode of the Health Biz Podcast, Joel Morse talks about decentralized trials and why they're growing. He also opens up about his experience building C3i and how it led him to adventures around the world, including his involvement with a royal family in Bulgaria. I'm your host, David Williams. Thanks for listening, and remember to subscribe to Health Biz. And if your healthcare or life sciences business needs strategy consulting, contact us at healthbusinessgroup.com. Well, Joel Morse, nice to have you on the show today. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me, David. Listen, Joel, we're going to talk about what you're doing now and what's going to happen forward, but I want to I want to roll back the clock a little bit. Uh, tell me a little bit about your your background, your upbringing, your education, your first job. Go way you know, way back in the archives. Okay, well, upbringing rural New Hampshire on the end of a long dirt road on a small family farm, and I'll date myself, but we had a four family party phone line. Awesome. So, yeah, you were on the phone very briefly, and it had to be an important phone call. So it's one of those things about, uh, you know, it's like, you know, not what you know or who you know, but what you know about who you know. So I guess in, the, in that case, you probably knew pretty much everything about everybody around there, especially how long they were on the phone. You definitely knew your neighbors well. So, <laughs> so that's where I grew up, and I was fortunate enough to go to Tufts University uh, outside of Boston and engineer. And my first job outside of Tufts was working for Ninex, which is now, I think, part of Horizon, but in a management training program. And it was a, it was a very insightful and, and great job. Yeah, that's pretty good. I remember Ninex, you know, my wife is named Nina. And we used to tell people, she used to tell people how to pronounce it. And it's like, like Nina, like Ninex, but it's sort of like, you can't say Nina like Verizon, you know? No, you can't. <laughs> you know? So good. And then what did you do from there? So after 9X, I went to, I like business a lot, I found out, and I went to Columbia Business School in New York and never left New York. And so, um, and then from Columbia Business School, went on to American Express working in strategic planning, which was an excellent opportunity, loved American Express. And then- So are you the, are you the one that came up with the idea for the platinum card? Uh, that was before my time, I have okay. to say, but- um, Actually, the guy that ran Platinum Card was my boss in strategic planning. And then he, he, that was usually a three or four year stint. And then you move over to the line job. Um, Got it. Yeah. So it was great. And then there I met my two co-founders for C3i. So we had, we were, and I was responsible for developing a new line of business for American Express or a new distribution channel for middle market corporate card and uh, corporate travel sales. And that Salesforce needed to have automation and we applied automation to it in the mid nineties. And then I saw a great opportunity for what then was called SFA services for re- remote based salespeople. And we started C- C- a company called C3i to provide services to that new industry. That sounds good. So it's like one of those uh, TLAs, right? Three letter acronym, Salesforce automation, and then C3i. The thing is three is not a letter last I checked. Well, C3I stands for Command Control Communications and Intelligence. It's a military term, I believe. Okay. Now that, sound, that sounds good. Well, great. So one thing we'll come back to, you know, is that one of your uh, co-founders at C3I is a co-founder of your new company today. And I'll just say that uh, it says something, and I'll just say it generally says something good about 
founders that they can actually go build one successful company and then come back and and uh, and do another. So I'll just give that little endorsement, a little plug for you and for Dave. So thank you. Uh, we'll get to that. So C3I. Okay. So I got the story in terms of the the name of it from the founding. It sounds pretty techy, you know. With the uh, if you'd been a little bit later, you would have started with the I, like the iPhone or whatever. So it was like IC3 instead of, but C3I sounds sounds good as well. So so you left, you just like walked into your boss and said, "I'm I'm turning in my badge and my credit card and I'm starting C3I." Or how did it how did it happen? That's basically what happened. We said that we have a great idea. We love uh, American Express, but this is an interesting opportunity, and we're young enough to um, not require. Uh, salaries at the point, and we can go and, and start this in our garage, which is what we did. And we had fully endorsed by American Express, actually, and they were our first client to do some consulting work. And then one of our biggest clients um, as we grew the company. And then as we grew the company, though, we decided to focus, and this was a big turning point for the company, to focus exclusively in pharmaceuticals. And um, at that time, there was a new company. Uh, and the software side of pharmaceuticals called Nomadic Systems, and they were breaking the model in pharma. The model was services and software together, and Nomadic said, no, we're just great software people, and you're going to get great software, and you'll need service providers like C3i. And so we partnered with them, and they were bought by a company called Siebel, and then you know, it just really took off, and we, we dominated in the Siebel services for Salesforce automation, and uh, that's really started our growth. Now, Joel, back at that time, which is not all that long ago for the uh, you know older folks such as myself, it was before venture capital you know was so well established and, and readily available. I know people who went out you know in the mid '90s to uh, found companies often really struggled for any kind of a fundraising. Did you bootstrap the company, or what did what did you do in terms of uh, you know raising funds? What was that like? Yeah, it was very hard actually. So we bootstrapped it for several years, taking very low salaries. And then five years into it, we actually raised some venture capital money. It was not with a, a firm that focused on life sciences or pharmaceuticals. It was just a very uh, traditional entry-level venture capital firm. And we raised money from them. We also raised money from friends and family. And we did get an investment from a corporate partner of ours as well. And that actually worked. So three investment rounds uh, to uh, capitalize the company to accelerate our growth. Now you ended up uh, selling the company to Merck, which I think was a big uh, a big customer. Um, how and then you went there and you and you got a little bit of a stint. Yeah, I guess you, you sort of go back and forth, right? It'd been twenty years since you'd been in American Express, and you needed another big company like that. Was that was that kind of the thinking? Well, the thinking was we grew C three I to a you know hundred million dollar, two thousand employees around the world. We were early in India, early in China, uh, early in Bulgaria, and so we had really a great global firm. And at the time, Merck had something called Health Services and Solutions, and they were building up a group of companies um, to augment their pharmaceutical business. And we fit in with a company called Telerex, which provided medical information call center and pharmacovigilance. And together, we were a $200 million pharma services company that had a full suite of services. It was a very exciting strategy. And I was very um, happy to sell to Merck and, and make a return for our investors and provide a great landing pad for our clients and our, our uh, employees. And it was a great combination of, of the companies. And, and we uh, did pretty well until then Merck decided to change the strategy and, and divest itself from HSS. So yeah, it's probably some consultant told them to do that, you know. 
<laughs> yeah, well, I, I think that, um, you know, big companies have different strategies and that all makes sense. So it made sense to probably do it and it made sense to sell it. And they sold us to HCL, which did a tremendous amount of work with Merck. So it was very synergistic. And but that wasn't what I wanted to do in the rest of my career. And so great people at HCL. And um, I fulfilled my contract by working to integrate C3I into their company and then reached back out to Dave Hanneman and said, hey, let's let's get back into clinical. It's so exciting. It needs to be disruptive. We've got some really good ideas. Let's get back at it. And he accepted. So. No, that sounds good. Now, Joel, before I let you talk about the present and the future, you slipped in one thing there I had to go back to. So, okay, early in China, early in India, now Bulgaria. Now, I think eventually you sort of got yourself into Bulgaria. You're like part of the royal family over there right now. Aren't you like a big shot in Bulgaria? Well, we were actually one of the biggest um, employers at the time. And so we probably, when I left um, Merck slash ACL, we had probably a thousand employees in two cities. And um, and it was really important for me to engage with the community. So I joined the board of American University in Bulgaria, where I was a trustee and head of the finance committee for six years. And I got to know the um, political parties. Now, part of that was that the gentlemen that ran our business park all then ran for president and won. And so I actually knew the president of Bulgaria. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, and, not uh, the king. Yeah, yeah. And well, I met the king, and the king's sister, um, uh, Maria Luisa, was on the board of American University, and they're very supportive of things like NATO, um, the Western alliances, and and um, and the university. Cool. All right. Well, I'm glad that I uh, I'm glad I got the full story. Yeah. I, I'm still not sure that's the full story, but I'm glad I got that part of the story. It's a good story, story, though. Yeah. Excellent. All right. So now you came back with Dave. So. So what had, ha- what had he been doing? Meanwhile, he wasn't working for Merck. Well, so Dave left about a year after. So after, about a year after we merged, I became president of the joint companies. Dave decided to join a few boards. Some of Merck was involved in some of those, um, be involved in, in the Utah business and healthcare scene. And also he's a leadership uh, trainer for companies like Google and, and places like that, where he takes executives out into the wilderness for two weeks and, and trains them on leadership skills. And so Dave is a real outdoorsman. He's out of um, Park City, Utah, and he was really doing some um, and, and liking to do some of those things. And I I had to you know get him back to say, look, we need to do something more exciting in the business side. You still got a lot in the tank. Let's get going on this. Yeah. Tell them to put that tie back on. Yep. You know, lace yeah. up those wingtips. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know about the tie, but yeah. I can get, them, get a blazer on it. Yeah. So. All right. So now let's talk about, so so this new company. So what's this company called? Also starts with a, a C, I might note. Yeah. I, I can't get past the alphabet, the C is in the alphabet, but Curavit Clinical Research. And so we are a CRO focused to exclusively on optimizing the delivery of virtual clinical trials. So CRO, another TLA there with a C. So that's a contract research organization, right? right? So like a ParExcel or somebody like that, you would put in that, in that category. And, and, you know, and why there's, there's hundreds of CROs out there, maybe more. So what, why is there a need for a new one? You just want to start one up or what's the, you know, what's the unique focus? Well, we saw virtual trials as a disruptor, a disruptor to the, traditional clinical trial uh, or CRO model. And so we felt like there's a great opportunity to carve out a niche in the virtual trials and actually optimize solutions around that. We didn't see the CRO industry doing that too quickly because that cannibalizes their business. They have to make investments. They have to retool software and, and solutions and people. So it gave us an opportunity to find a niche that was, we thought before the pandemic, 
exciting, but, you know, futuristic. And now with, with COVID is, is definitely helped on a few areas and challenged in other areas. You know, so we were talking about this new business concept uh, before the pandemic, which yes. seems like a long, long time ago, even though it wasn't so long ago. And you're right, it was sort of like various trends that were happening. And as you and I had discussed the other day, a lot of things that were kind of trending before the pandemic, now they really kind of took off, you know, after uh, after it after it happened. So virtual trials was kind of a thing. And is it just that it's that it's now going to go faster, or does it give you some new uh, insights and a change of direction with the pandemic happening? Well, I think the pandemic, the best thing the pandemic did was um, the acceptance of telehealth. And telehealth was here well before COVID, but people really didn't accept it as well. And so now everybody has accepted it. And that goes from, you know, across generations. So, but most important, Sponsors accepted. So the the what I've seen in the industry. And Joel, is, when you say sponsor, you know, in this, the, we're talking about a pharmaceutical company or a biotech company. It's not somebody's like going to sponsor my kid's little league game when when the, when the teams come yeah, back. That's exactly right. The pharmaceutical companies, uh, device companies, digital therapeutics that pay for these clinical trials, and I think they were a little reluctant to try new things because it's really important to get it right so the FDA approves it, and so they're highly risk adverse as they should be. Uh, and the uh, COVID gave them gave the industry the opportunity to see that telehealth really worked, and that can be applied. And then that I think opened up a lot of eyes to um, accepting um, virtual clinical trials. And you know, there's a lot of uh, components that go into a clinical trial and a contract research organization. Some, you know, quite expansive in what they do. How would you define the scope of what Curavit is doing? And is that something, do you have maybe a strategy to get started narrowly and then go broader? Or is there a particular niche that you want to carve out in the CRO functionality? Well, we're definitely looking at the niche for virtual trials. And we start that with experienced investigators. So our you know 20 plus year experienced investigators working with academic centers, sit down with a pharmaceutical company to design the protocol or really the directions of the clinical trial. And so by having that somebody that experienced involved gives the pharmaceutical companies, the sponsors, confidence that it can be done right. And then we execute the trial. And so that is, you know, shipping out the devices, working with the virtual software companies, doing the telehealth visits, having the clinical ops team, having our site, which is a virtual site, be completely digital. So it supports work from anywhere and it supports something called remote monitoring. So the pharmaceutical companies can actually see exactly what's going on in the trial. It's all audit ready so that it passes any FDA or uh, audit that comes in. And then we also uh, are executing patient recruitment through the web so we can recruit because it's a virtual trial patients from the home we can recruit patients regardless of geography and that's a big game changer from the traditional trials into virtual trials joel when you mention experienced investigators that's not something something i necessarily associate with um virtual trials what, what do you mean by you know why is a experienced investigator important and, and give me an example what, what does an experienced investigator look like so an experienced investigator is, from our definition, associated with an academic center like Harvard, Tufts, uh, Vanderbilt, Boston University, who we're working with all of those today. And they do, um, they do their clinical work and they also do research and they're well published. And with a, with a virtual trial, you need fewer investigators. 
the traditional model, you might have a hundred sites, therefore a hundred investigators, each trying to recruit five to 10 patients. In a virtual trial, you could have four or 500 patients all go through the trial, having one investigator, very experienced, and then a, a series of sub-investigators and clinical nurses and things like that. So you have a, a very um, focused, intelligent, in-depth expert running your trial. Got it. So I understand the niche that you're you're focused on in virtual trials. And as you mentioned, maybe the traditional CROs haven't uh, you know, picked up the ball there. They're not really structured to do it. But there are some companies, I think about like Science37 or, or Lightship that predate Curavit and, and have focused on virtual trials. So are you just the, the third leg of the stool there? Or is there something that you would do differently uh, than what they do? Well, given that the, ver- the clinical trial market is multi-billion dollars and the virtual component of that is probably $20 billion, you're going to see new entrants come in and try to disrupt. And so we are the same genre of Lightship and Science37. Where we are different is on the investigators. So we, our model is to use very experienced investigators, like I talked about. Our business model is differentiated. We partner with um, the virtual application companies. We don't have our own virtual software com- software to execute the trials. And we think that that partnership enables us to focus on trial execution and work with best of breed software companies. And then our site is completely digital and um, you know highly always audit ready. So some of these um, other companies are developing their own technologies, and it sounds like you're working in in uh, partnerships. So you know, what would be an example of a sort of partner that you'd be working with? So to name a name, like uh, there's Medable, there's Castor, there's Metadata, there's Clinical Inc. We have uh, partnerships with all of them, and what they do is. If they're in front of a client and that client says, this is great, but what I want is now a CRO that can help me guide all of these, you know, guide me through this trial. They say, great, talk to Curavit because they are focused exclusively in virtual trials. So we've been brought into many deals because of the software companies. And then we actually take the lead. And so the client, we were on the phone with a client yesterday and said, great, we will have one contract with you and then you contract with um, the device distribution company, you contract with the software company, and that's the, the traditional CRO model that we, that we execute. So in a sense, what's happening is you've got the sponsors that are interested in virtual trials. There's other players out there like Amedable that they might call first. Amedable has the technology, but they still need the service components and you know they're not providing everything. And then they would come to you as opposed to a traditional CRO because you actually have this focus uh, as well. Yeah. So that's the starting point. And then, you know, how do you see things unrolling from here? And of course, if I asked you this a year ago, you know, who knows what you would have said, but let, let's just say knowing what you know now, um, you know, what's, what's going to happen and, and what are you seeing? In fact, maybe, you know, do you have customers? Like who are the, who are the early customers? What does that, what does that look like? Yeah. So we have early customers and our early customers are focused on the biotechs. We're working with uh, academic research centers to um, engage with their researchers to execute virtual trials. And so we have contracts with, you know, like Boston Medical Center, as an example, and we're working with digital therapeutics companies. So as a firm now, we are established, we are post-revenue, we have clients, we have referenceable clients, and we are at the tail end of our fundraising. So we will have the resources we need to fully execute 
our business plan, which is to become a leader in the CRO space for virtual clinical trials. So if you're successful and say, you know, wind it ahead and you have, uh, let's say if these customers are successful with their trials and you do more with them, you know, what could this look like in, let's say, three, three years or so from now? Well, we think it's really exciting. So in three years, we forecast that 20% of all trials will be fully virtual and another large percentage will have virtual components like, you know, e-consent. We think we can be a you know, uh, tens of millions of dollar revenue company in that short amount of time. And the key, though, is to be able to demonstrate significant value to the pharmaceutical companies in this mode of clinical trial. So they can go to trial faster, they can get their patients faster, and they can execute uh, with higher efficacy, end it sooner, and get that drug approved uh, sooner so that they can actually start earning revenue. Remember when the pandemic started and all this uh, vaccine acceleration began with Operation Warp Speed, I think people like you and I have been around the block would say, you know, the fastest anybody's ever developed a vaccine is really three to five years. So, you know, what makes us think it's going to go so fast? And for a variety of reasons, uh, you know, it happened in, in months. And I think that that is, causes people to also re-examine their assumptions about drug development and how long, you know, should it take? And while you always hear that it, drug development costs, you know, X hundreds of millions of dollars or billion dollars to, to develop one drug and takes forever, you know, I think that assumption needs to be on the table now and that uh, there's other areas of, of development like software development that happen much faster. And they have methodologies like Agile that, uh, you know, that make it work and the quality is high. So I'm wondering whether it's not just kind of like the pandemic has given acceptance of uh, telehealth, but also just what you've seen in terms of the, the pressure and the, and the results of the development, at least on the vaccine side, you know, can we see whole new assumptions about how drug development can happen, whether virtual or not? Yeah, I, I think so. That's a great lesson from, from COVID. And I think at the, at the highest level with the pharmaceutical companies, they're asking those questions of their clinical teams. Why can't we do this faster? Why does it take three years instead of one? You know, we, we basically get these, you know, multiple, not just one, but multiple vaccines under a year. And that's just amazing. So have we changed the paradigm? And I think that, um, so those questions are being asked. And I think that um, the drug company that will, will be responsible they will be doing a lot of testing to make sure that there's always safety with patients and everybody always leans heavily towards making sure that whatever they're doing, there's patient safety. So I don't think you're going to see a dramatic turnaround immediately, but there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of great data that suggests that these things can be a lot faster, but there will always be a focus on patient safety and making sure that that is not compromised. You know the vaccine front, which has usually just been a tiny fraction of the of the market, uh, they've moved quickly. But you don't see something comparable on therapeutics for COVID. And I wonder about you know what it would have looked like if the government had focused its effort there. And maybe in fact they will as a follow up, as we see, just having the vaccine isn't going to wipe any, any anything out. I mean, is that a place to start? Well, David, um, I'll get the numbers slightly wrong, but I heard a presentation by uh, Gottlieb, who used to run the FDA. Yeah, Scott Gottlieb. Yeah, Scott, he was very frustrated by this because I do believe that there are well over 150 trials. We're doing a trial ourselves out in the marketplace, and um, the majority of those have not recruited enough patients. 
and and that has been a struggle for for either virtual trials or site-based trials because um, some of the, the the patients don't want to be part of the control group. They want to actually, if they have COVID, they're scared and they want to get help and they are struggling to get into a trial. So I think that there is um, focus at the at the Scott Gottlieb level, and he was looking at data that was coming out of the FDA. But I think the FDA will research that because that's a there's a lot of important trials that could be going on, and the majority of them are slowed down because of patients not wanting to be part of a control group. Yeah, interesting. You know that that kind of problem is addressed in other areas like HIV, where you'd have you know yes. standard of care versus an, an intervention, and then opportunities for people to access a new treatment if it's uh, if it's available. A little different with something that's more acute like COVID. But I think we shouldn't. Lesson for me anyway is we shouldn't just accept that, hey, you know, this is how it, this is how it is. We, we should really say every, it should be able to go faster and therefore, and therefore cheaper. All right. So looking forward to these great successes. And in the meantime, uh, we've got a webinar coming up in, uh, in March and you invited me as a panelist on the webinar. I don't know if that was a retaliation for inviting you onto the podcast and you're going to grill me, but I assume not. What's the, uh, what's the objective for this webinar? So we're working with Marcus Evans to try to build our brand. And it's been hard for CureVit because some of the challenges is no face-to-face um, trade shows. DIA is, is virtual. And in a virtual, as a, as a new vendor, in a virtual setting, it's not- so Nobody um, dropped drop by your booth? You can't give nobody, them like some- Nobody came by. So usually, not- Joel, people would come in because you'd have like a little uh, magic show or some tchotchkes that you're, that you're giving out, some drinks maybe. Well, and you missed just walking around. We went to Scope um, in February, the last trade show. We didn't even have a booth, and we had you know probably a dozen great conversations. And so, with a booth, we would have done even better. So, so we um, engaged with Marcus Evans, and they are running a series for us. And one of those is a webinar, and we wanted to bring experts like you onto it and basically start building awareness around our brand, but also around virtual clinical trials. And so, I'm looking forward to that, and looking forward to building the pie for all of us. For virtual clinical trials, it should be an interesting webinar. I don't, you know, I haven't met the other uh, panelists. I, I, I have met Dave Hanneman, uh, your co-founder. He's one of the panelists, but yes. I think there's uh, there's a couple of other folks um, that I didn't know. Do you do you have background on them? Well, the background is that they have thrown their hat in the ring to say that they want to help get the word out to the marketplace on improvements of clinical trials, and so they're active in their companies and you know, in the right locations within those companies to start adopting some of these virtual clinical trials. Good. Well, we'll see how it goes. I'll, I'll leave a registration link um, with well, part of you. my blog post here, and that way people can uh, uh, can sign up and, and attend that. I think it's March 11th is when it yes. is. Yes, it is. Thank you, David. So, Joel, you've been a, a busy guy, and I'm sure, you know, you mostly spend time like reading your financial statements and dealing with lawyers and, and all that. But uh, any pleasure reading or other kind of reading that you've been doing? And we always like to ask the guests about uh, anything they're reading, anything they recommend, especially. Well, you, you know, I mentioned that it's tough to build a new brand, especially in the COVID uh, time where you can't get out. So I actually bought a book called Building a Story Brand by Don Miller. And it's a it's a great read. It's a fast read. And it really helps you think about uh, who your customers are and how to build a brand and how to build messaging and, and be smart about it and build your website. So I just read that as a refresher because we really need to make sure that our market is um, aware of us and that our, our target, our, our message is very clear. So a little bit on the business side. And then on the personal side, I've been reading a book called Woods Wise. 
which probably a lot of people haven't read, but it's written by an author by the name of Michael Snyder, and he is head of Parks and Rec for the state of Vermont. And uh, he writes, he's also a, I think, professor at University of Vermont, and he writes articles for various magazines about the woods, you know, why some trees grow taller than others, why some Greek trees are thick like Christmas trees and spread out maybe like an oak tree. So anyway, it's, it's, they're short articles and they're, they're fun to read and you learn a little bit. And, um, you know, Mike just loves working in the woods and it's, it's fun to listen and, you know, listen to his voice through his, through his book. Well, sounds good. I also see like, you're like a, you know, New York guy and you've got Dave out in the, the mountains out in Utah and you've got uh, Michael up in, in Vermont. So I guess it's like you're living vicariously or something. Right. And I should, I should also mention that we have Pam Diamond, who's our chief medical officer out of Boston. So we've got the Boston biotech scene. Uh, well, right. well now it's checked off. Now, now, now I consider you a legit company. All right. Good. Well, Joel Morris, uh, you know, founder and CEO of C3i previously, and now uh, cure of it. It's nice having you on the show, and I wish you the best of luck in building the business. Thank you, David. Really appreciate talking with you. Let's stay in touch. You've been listening to the Health Biz Podcast with me, David Williams, president of Health Business Group. I conduct in-depth interviews with leaders in healthcare business and policy. If you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe on your favorite service. While you're at it, go ahead and subscribe on your second and third favorite services as well. There's more good stuff to come, and you won't want to miss an episode. If your organization is seeking strategy consulting services in healthcare, check out our website, healthbusinessgroup.com.